You've probably seen the Boston Dynamics videos because they've gone completely viral. A robot dog named Spot climbs stairs or loads the dishwasher. One of their robots can even do parkour. They're amazingly agile and sometimes a little unsettling, which has led a lot of people to ask, what will these robots ultimately be used for? For this episode of Get Wired, writer Matt Simon talked to Mark Raybert, the founder of Boston Dynamics. They talked about the earliest days building these robots, how Boston Dynamics is finally selling them commercially, and whether these super nimble robots are going to eventually take our jobs. I'm Lauren Good, and this is Get Wired. Matt, thanks for joining me on the show this week. And thanks for having me. Before we get to your interview with Mark, I would love to get some context from you because you've been reporting on the company for a really long time. So tell us, what does Boston Dynamics do? Boston Dynamics has been around for almost 30 years and just very recently started marketing an actual product, which is not a typical trajectory for a business. Um, it, it started out with funding from the government to make uh, a machine called Big Dog. And if you've seen it on the internet, it's this big, clunky, gangly machine that is extremely loud. That has, over the years, turned into what you have probably seen recently, which is Spot. It's a mini version of that. Much quieter, uh, much more adept, and it, it moves with this kind of, for some people, unsettling smoothness. It, it walks just like a four-legged animal. There is also Atlas, which is a humanoid robot that walks on two feet. Uh, it can add backflips. And then the third main one is called Handle. It is a two-wheeled robot that actually moves kind of like a, a Segway, the thing that balances on two wheels and it has an arm and it scoots around facilities and picks up packages and transports them around. And, and kind of this also hypnotic movement uh, that Boston Dynamics machines have really become known for. That movement, I think, is what makes them stand out to people, right? There's something about it that makes the videos that much more jarring to see because they are so agile, right? And their gears move like our human gears do. They've actually taken a lot of inspiration from nature. You know, natural selection over hundreds of millions of years of complex creatures crafted this perfect way for animals to move. Uh, like the way that a, a cheetah moves is, is astounding. So Boston animals can actually look at that and mimic that in a certain way. Do you get the sense from talking to Mark or other people involved with Boston Dynamics, like SoftBank, which now owns Boston Dynamics, that they envision these robots replacing humans? and human jobs. This is a topic of considerable debate. I fall on that side of these robots just are nowhere near complex and sophisticated enough to be able to replicate human jobs completely. So what Boston Dynamics has positioned Spot as is a sort of augmentation for human labor. You have the dull, dirty, dangerous jobs that you don't want humans to do. The idea is that an operator um, is still a human with a job, pilots Spot around an environment, and from then on, Spot can walk that environment autonomously. So if you spent any time in robotics labs, you'll know that the machines are just really limited in their specialties. We're a very long way from having machines that will replace us outright. 
Well, Matt, I can't wait to hear your conversation with Mark. Let's get to it. Hey, Mark. Thank you for taking the time to be on the podcast. Uh, it's great to be here. Thanks for asking me. Us humans have been suffering through a pandemic. How are the robots doing? For a company that only had people working in the lab, we didn't have any work at home uh, before COVID, we've adjusted very well. We have about 70 robots at people's houses. So they're either developing software and testing it on the robot or there's techs fixing things. We've adjusted to work from home uh, a lot better than I thought we would. I wanted to hopefully get a kind of a genesis of Boston Dynamics. I'd be particularly interested to hear why you chose this career path, which is safe to say very few people have, have done before. You know, I think there were two seminal events uh, when I was a graduate student. You know, I mean, I was always a builder, so I loved to build things. But there were two events. One is when I started graduate school, I'd been an electrical engineer but I was trying to do neurophysiology. It wasn't going very well. I didn't like it very much. And one day I followed some professor back to his lab and there was a robot arm prototype disassembled on the table in about a thousand pieces, someone fixing it. And I just looked at that and I was a roboticist from that day on. The other event was I went to a conference on animal locomotion. And it, all the talks were about animals. But there was one guy who gave a talk about a, a legged robot he had built. And he had it up there, and it had uh, six legs. It was extremely slow. It balanced itself by figuring out which three legs to have on the ground and which three to pick up. And I looked at that and said, wow, that's wrong, <laughs> you know? People not only don't keep a lot of legs on the ground, when we run, we fly through the air some of the time. And I thought, you also bounce on your legs. So I just looked at that thing and thought, wow, what's the opposite of that? And it took me a few years till I found someone who would uh, fund it. And then I went and built a, a pogo stick robot, which couldn't balance itself with three legs because it only had one. And the spring in the leg was a key thing. I don't know if you know, but Big Dog had physical springs in the legs that it bounced on when it moved. Those stayed in our designs for a long time. Looking back into the earlier days of Boston Dynamics, we had the robot Big Dog, um, which was a large, um, somewhat gangly <laughs> machine in the early days of your research of uh, quadrupedal locomotion. And that has eventually turned into what we now see as Spot, um, the much smaller version, uh, much quieter. I was hoping you could walk us through what Big Dog was and how that evolved into the spot that we see today. Sure. You know, the Big Dog was really a milestone for us because it was a self-contained robot. If you go back to those MIT days, our robots were hook, hooked up to computers with wire bundles. They were hooked up to power supplies with either hydraulic hoses usually and uh, electrical connections. So those were really lab experiments. Big Dog was the first uh, quadruped we built that was really an entity out there in the world. It had its computing on board. It had its power on board. You know, we were using gasoline engines. That's why it was so noisy. It took us to the point where you could look at this robot and say, geez, you know, all the pieces are there. We need to improve them all. But you could see it being a, a real thing that could be useful, uh, that could be out in the world and all that. And so that, that was what Big Dog really did for us. Boston Dynamics takes a lot of cues from nature, of course. So it's 
you know, in a way convenient that evolution has invented these ways of locomotion, but it's also extremely difficult to replicate that in a machine. And I was wondering if you could talk about that disconnect. Well, it's absolutely true. You know, we get inspiration from what people and animals can do. You know, that's the basic idea of how we're working. We're trying to uh, get the functionality that people and animals have. But the engineering in our robots is just totally different than nature. Uh, we don't have the energy supply mechanisms, the kind of actuators, tens of thousands of sensors throughout the body that are in the physical engineering of a person or an animal. But I think that the real challenge is the versatility of behavior of people and animals. We can go all the way from saying, I'm starting to get hungry. I'm going to have to go into the house and get some food. And then working that all the way back to all of our muscles working together to get us to climb the uh, stairs to get from here to there. So there's you know so much going on. And I feel like at Boston Dynamics, there's uh, a lot of uh, mobility, dexterity, real-time perception of the world around us. Uh, they're good. They're getting better all the time. But there's a lot more we need to do. I think what's also neat about robotics is that you can leave nature behind and create something that evolution has never done. And in that case, that would be the handle robot that you folks have developed for work in warehouses that kind of rolls around like one of those Segway scooters. You know, there are ways to take cues from nature, uh, copy what evolution has perfected. But then you as robotics can say, well, let's throw that out and, and develop kind of our own type of locomotion in a new kind of organism. Yeah, I think that is a, a really important idea. And uh, I like to um, kind of tease the scientists. I think science is great, and I think scientists are great. But engineering is a step further, in my opinion, because science is about uh, understanding nature, basically, or explaining it. But engineering takes all of that and then creates something new, something that's never existed before. Specifically in, in robotics, you know, we are not tied to how nature does things. The way that natural selection shapes an organism is based on the environment. You know, um, a, a four-legged uh, animal adapts to a particular environment. A two-legged animal like ourselves has a different lifestyle. But what roboticists do is look at an environment and say, what can we specifically design for that? There, there, there's a certain intentionality there. Sure. I mean, but... Not only can we look at the environment and design a robot that's suitable for it, we can redesign the environment. And then you can get the, you know, the best of both worlds. And so the idea that you'd make candles safe enough for a person to be a coworker with it, that's, that's tough. And so rather than do that, the people we're testing with are making dedicated lanes where handle operates in this lane, you know, people operate in this lane, and they, they don't mix together. I mean, that's a simple but really useful example of designing the world to accommodate the robot at least a little bit. So now, Spot, the robot dog is out on the market, but how are companies actually using it? Use cases. You know, we have about 300 spots out there. And so there's a lot of different things people are using them for. We designed Spot so it was adaptable. You know, it's got kind of a roof rack on it so you can attach hardware. We from day one, thought of Spot as that kind of, uh, if not exactly a Swiss army knife, something that could have things added to it, like the blades of a Swiss army knife. And that's both true about the hardware and also about the software. 
So I think some of the uh, people who are using a spot for doing industrial sensing are using their AI in order to not just get to a meter and take a picture of it, but figure out what information the meter is providing. Uh, One of them is using uh, microphones in order to listen to their equipment and then do an analytical study of uh, what they're hearing in order to figure out is everything going smoothly the way it's supposed to. And the cool thing, of course, about robots is they can do this in places where people can't go. And, uh, you know, we don't care if the robot gets hurt. One of the people doing that is SpaceX. I don't know if you've been watching the Boca Chica uh, launch site where they've been testing and doing some launches. There's a couple of spots there that have cameras. When they get close to a test or a launch, there's a lot going on. Uh, It's not safe for a person to go out there. And sometimes an event will happen and they want to take a look and understand what's going on. And they can uh, operate the robot, take it to the location, examine in detail what's happening, and then decide, uh, do they need to scrub or can they proceed with what they're doing? Can you walk us through some of the attachments that actually go on spot, the the blades essentially in that Swiss Army knife? Obviously not literally blades on the robot, but what can customers currently slap on the robot? Uh, And then maybe actually looking forward to the future, what would you want to develop to add to it? Sure. Well, the simplest thing is just kind of a breakout box so that you can plug a lot of stuff into it easily. An additional computer you can put on the back. Suppose you want to have your AI running uh, with the robot, we have spot cam, a really high quality ring camera where you can look around and see the whole world around you. We have a manipulator, which we're just about to start selling. And having an arm on spot is just a huge thing. Not only because manipulating the world is a big frontier and has huge opportunity for it, but I think having manipulators that have a mobile base like spot under it is really a game changer. So I have an assignment for you to do at dinner tonight. Sit at the table, sit up straight, keep your shoulders fixed, and see how many things on the dinner table you can reach with your arm. You're really going to be disappointed at how small the workspace is of an arm if you don't use your body. But of course, we don't work that way. We, you know, use our torso, you know, leaning back and forth. And I can reach this whole table And if you get up and move, use your legs, you can even go further. So the workspace of an arm goes from a very limited thing to really unbounded. And so Spot's one of the first uh, mobile manipulation platforms that can travel around, pitch, roll, and yaw, uh, and also has a seven degree of freedom arm on it. Now I have to say that the software that makes all that work isn't as well developed as our mobility software yet. So we're going to, you know, we're working hard on that. We want to make it so it's as easy to use that free manipulator as it is to use the mobility platform. Have you gotten to drive it yet? I actually drove it when I was on site with you folks a a while back. And then I did it actually remotely through my browser Mm -hmm. a little while after that, which was really interesting because you would expect there to be this awkward latency between the commands that you give it and what it actually pulls off. But it was weirdly smooth. It's because of having local intelligence about the body. You just tell it roughly what you want it to do and it figures everything else out. I drove it from an airplane flying from uh, Boston to, uh, to San Francisco, uh, I think a year and a half ago. And you know what the bandwidth on those airplanes is like. It's, it's really terrible. But I didn't have any trouble driving the robot around the lab. That's great. Yeah, that is 
probably the worst connection you could possibly establish on the internet is in an airplane. We're going to take a quick break, but stick around because when we come back, we're going to hear Matt and Mark Raybert discuss the future of Boston Dynamics and how the company hopes to win over a public that can't stop thinking about the robot apocalypse. So we have this challenge of both adapting robots to environments and in some cases adapting the environments to the robots. But then to make things even more complicated, we have to start thinking about human coworkers. I was wondering if you could speak to that challenge, um, how you're making a robot like spot safe. But then also, is there kind of a learning period for the human coworkers that end up working with it? I would say that we really aren't at the point where spot is safe. I mean, Spot's pretty safe. It's light. It's not that strong. But all of our uh, policies and, uh, you know, everybody we've sold to is uh, an industry, an industrial user. We don't sell to individuals who are going to try and use them in their homes. They're really not ready to be operating around your children or even really very close to you. I think the instructions we give with Spot are that you're supposed to stay six feet away, kind of social distancing. I hadn't thought of that before. You sort of have to social distance with our robots. Uh, And that's really the safety. Um, But it's a big challenge. You know, I think people uh, have a vision that they're going to be our friend, that robots are going to be your friends and we're going to cuddle up to them. And I would love to make a robot that could uh, uh, help elderly people or, or disabled people by lifting them out of bed in the morning. I had an aunt who had a stroke. She was living here at our house. And, uh, you know, we had hired people to come in to help her get up in the morning, put her in bed at night and all that. And I'm sure she didn't like that. Uh, She would much rather have the help of uh, something like a machine. Not not everybody would like that, but I think there's a lot of people uh, who do that. But the robots aren't ready for that, the kind of uh, intimate interaction yet. Black Mirror did a a now famous episode with uh, apocalyptic robots that you might have... uh, looked at as familiar. <laughs> uh, could you give us your reaction to, to such a fictionalizing spot, really? The uh, producers contacted us and asked if we would help them do PR for him. <laughs> I, you know, I, I looked at it and wanted to say something to them like, geez, this, this story has been told a thousand times. Why don't you guys think of a new story? That was really my reaction. Uh, you know, it's too bad that robots have been demonized. I, I don't think that robots are any different technology than any other new technology. You know, the thing is that the the evil they portray is the evil of people, not the evil of machines. So I keep pushing the the burden back to people, not to the robots. I don't think the robots are evil. I think a, a user could be evil and use a robot for a bad thing, but they can also use it for a good thing. The same as a, a truck, a pickup truck, or anything, a rock. <laughs> so a key difference here between a truck and a robot is a truck is meant to be a truck, right? It doesn't take after anything in nature. And what you've done with a humanoid robot like Atlas is create something that moves almost exactly like a human. And I think that might kind of bring us into this concept of the uncanny valley, where we see a robot that looks or moves a lot like a human, and it creates this eeriness in our brains. 
I think the same goes with Spot moving a whole lot like a dog, yet not being a dog. Is this concept of the Uncanny Valley something that you as a company have to contend with? Um, you know, you notice that Atlas, uh, that facial expressions aren't a thing. In fact, it doesn't have a face. It doesn't even have a head. Uh, there, there were times early on when people complained that uh, Atlas didn't have a head and that freaked them out. And we once had a video of, uh, it was a precursor to Spot. I think it was Big Dog with an arm attached to it, where we were throwing things with the arm. And it's an arm with a hand throwing things. And some of the comments to the YouTube video was, why is it biting the cinder block? You know, why is it picking it up in its mouth and throwing it? You know, and they, and they were freaked out about that. It was the first time I realized people were perceiving uh this quadruped's arm and hand as a really long neck with a little tiny head on it. And Kenny Valley doesn't come up much with us, to be honest. But are people afraid of the robots? That comes up all the time because the media loves putting terrifying in the titles of the stories about us. Uh, and peop some people will say that they're afraid. Uh, but my experience taking spot around the world to do shows, you know, we pre-COVID, we were going everywhere, taking physical robots, doing stage performances, and then taking the robots into the crowd afterwards. People love ro the robot. They want to pet it. They want to pose with it. So once they see the robot up close and personal, there's much less fear. I think it's an indication that we need to you know, get it out there and uh, society will adjust. Yeah, so now that Spot's actually working out there, and I thought a really interesting case was it was working in a Boston hospital, um, screening patients, some some COVID patients. Can you tell us about what insights you might have gleaned in these, you know, the early days of of Spot's deployment? Anything surprising you might want to share with us? Yeah, sure. There's there's two things. So basically, when COVID struck, uh, some MIT researchers who are working on uh, perception algorithms, asked if we would participate in an experiment where you know people come into the hospital and say, I think I have COVID or I want to verify that I don't have COVID, whatever it is. And the standard way of dealing with them is someone has to get suited up and go interact with them. And so we did an experiment where we had the robot interact with them. The robot could look at the person and do some vital sign measurement. So one of the things we were worried about is that people would freak out if uh, they were exposed to robot. So the people who were doing the experiment asked the uh, people, do you want to have a robot or do you want to have a doctor or nurse? And no one uh, insisted that they have a doctor or nurse. Everybody was game for the robot. And I think that was a milestone in, uh, in refuting the idea that our robots are so scary that, uh, you know, that people are going to freak out. Boston Dynamics has been around for almost three decades now. I was hoping to get your thoughts on what 30 years from now will look like for Boston Dynamics, um, both in terms of the way that robots have you know, more thoroughly infiltrated society, working closer with humans, but what might your robots look like? You know, my dream is that we keep going and, uh, and make the robots we have today look very limited and uh, and stupid uh, i think uh, having much more cognitive intelligence and more refined athletic intelligence has got to be in the cards i don't think people like me know all the ways that robots are going to get used it's been remarkable the things that uh, the current round of users have come up with 
Uh, and I think that's just going to keep going. Uh, people have great imaginations and energy to try stuff out. And if we make the robots in a form where they can try stuff, uh, the sky's the limit. Well, thank you, Mark. It's great always uh, to talk. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. That's it for this episode of Get Wired. Get Wired is hosted by me, Lauren Good. You can follow me on Twitter at Lauren Good. This episode was reported by Matt Simon, and you can follow Matt on Twitter at Mr. Matt Simon. Thanks to Mark Raber for coming on the show. This episode was produced by Mickey Capper, with additional production help from Anna Stitt, Alex Jerome, and Ben Montoya. Mixing and scoring was done by Hannes Brown. Our theme music is by Allison Leighton Brown. Nina Gensler Debs and Sarah Fallon edited this episode. Wired senior editor Kara Platoni gave us additional guidance. Scott Rosenfield is Wired site director, and our editor in chief is Nick Thompson. You can subscribe to Wired at wired.com forward slash subscribe forward slash get wired. And we'd love to hear what you think of the show. So if you're using Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. And if you enjoyed the show, share it with your friends. We'd really appreciate it. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next week. 